Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Sure, legendary microphones, cutting-edge wireless systems, premium earphones and headphones. Sure, the most trusted audio brand worldwide. For more information, go to Sure.com. And now your host, Al Levy. I want to take a second to tell you about something that I am very excited about, and it's the URM Summit. Once a year, we hold an event where hundreds of producers from all over the world come together for four days of networking, workshops, seminars, and hanging out. This industry is all about relationships, and think about it. What could you gain from getting to personally know your peers from all over the world who have the same goals as you, the same struggles as you, and who can help inspire you, motivate you, as well as become potential professional collaborators? This year's summit is on November 9th through 11th at the Las Vegas Westin, which is just one block off of the Strip, and it's going to be even bigger and better than ever. We're anticipating even more producers, plus a lineup of amazing guests like Jens Bogren, Chris Crummett, Machine, Forrester Savell, Michael Agian, Dave Otero, Billy Decker, Chris Adler, Mary Zimmer, Mike Mowry, Jesse Cannon, Blasco, Jason Leckberg, Jesco Lohan, and more. And of course, our musical guest, the one and only Ark Spire. So get your summit tickets now at urmsummit.com, and we will see you in Vegas. My guest today is Mr. Steve Evitz, who's a songwriter, engineer, producer, and mixer who's touched many, many different genres and artists in his decades-long amazing career. Since the inception of that career in the 90s, he's worked with lots of people you've heard of, like the Dillinger Escape Plan, Suicide Silence, Devil Driver, The Cure, Earth Crisis, Every Time I Die, Hate Breed, Architects, and a ton more amazing bands. He's got lots of Billboard toppers under his belt, and he just continues to churn out incredible productions, no sign of stopping. And what I love about his work is that no matter what's going on trend-wise, his stuff always sounds like a band is playing which uh, is one of the things I don't like about modern production. So anyways, Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So just a little bit of background. Sure. What got you started? What sparked your interest in doing this all in the first place? I was always kind of fascinated by recording. I actually discovered a, an old reel-to-reel, like a home webcore company was uh, called Webcore old uh, reel-to-reel tape machine, which was like a home recording thing, like back in, I think it was from the 50s from my parents. I found it in our attic when I was about seven years old, six or seven, if I, if I remember right. And uh, I would like record my sister playing piano and just like be just fascinated. And it was, there was this like little, basically like this little crystal mic that plugged in with a little RCA jack. It's stored in the lid of the of the recorder and there literally I think there was like one reel of tape that we had and I would just I figured out how to thread the tape and you know you turn the thing is like and it would record and just like it it kind of like got me going then and even like when I was a kid like making and if you ever made pause tapes instead of mixtapes but that was like the way of editing like you take you take a tape recorder and you record something and you pause it at the right spot and then like go to record something else and unpause it 
to try and make an edit from one part to another or yeah, one song I used to, to another. I used to try that back on a four track and then on an eight uh-huh. track. I would do it just with like the home, my home stereo, like my wow. Panasonic <laughs> home stereo, like doing the make pause tapes, like the early version of like a mixtape or edit. Um, I was always fascinated by it. I had this old um, Panasonic stereo that was at inherited from my parents too that there was a stereo and mono switch you could either flip it from because back back in the day a lot of lps were either mono they some of them were mono some of them were stereo so you could actually flip it to mono and there was actually left and right separate volume knobs for the left speaker and the right speaker so when you put it in mono like when i would listen to like the beatles white album it would sum both sides to mono and I could actually, you know how like the old Beatles recordings, like a lot of times like the drums and almost all the music's in the left speaker yep. and the, just the vocals are in the right speaker and I was just like, I figured it out. I put it in mono and all of a sudden I could turn down one side and you would hear just the vocals. And I was like, wow, I just, you know, like I was like fascinated by it. So I was always into it. And then I, you know, I was think I was 13 or 14. I took my money from my bar mitzvah <laughs> and the year you became a man, the year I became a man. And I got a, I got a four track. I got a Fostex X15 four track and it was awesome because it was battery powered as well as you could plug it into the wall. I could run it on D batteries. I could go outside and record, like my neighbor Lee, my across my neighbor who lived across the street from me, I would record him with his motorcycle riding down the street for sound effects, and I would pan it left and right, you know, like make my own little. I was <laughs> so yeah. I've been into recording forever. I got into bands when I was in high school. Uh, I had a this local kind of metal band that had a little bit of national success. We had our small record deal with a, a BMG distributed indie. When you were in high school? No, no, right out of after, right out okay. of high school. I was like nineteen, and uh, my whole thing was, man, I hope the band makes it so I could, I could, you know, build a recording studio. So that was just the goal. It was always, for the most part, it was the be all end all. It was like I hope I, I always recorded my band's demos, like on four track. Had you ever gone to another producer? Uh, my band? Well, yeah. actually, yes, because we went to... The only thing we went to was with Eric Rachel at Tracks East. Uh, that's where we recorded our first, our debut record. Okay, awesome. And we request we recorded all our demos with Eric at Tracks East when Tracks East was a basement studio. It was an eight-track studio in his father's basement before he became a commercial facility. Uh, we recorded our demos, and our demos got a lot of airplay, like on on the local metal college radio station. That's quite a talented dude to. Oh yeah. Do your first demos with? Yeah. Oh yeah. W- no. w- was that like basically, you know, going to recording school for you? Uh, in a way, yeah. It was. I mean, it was really funny because we did like. I played on my friend John, who's this drummer who's out here now. He's a drum tech out here in LA, and we went to high school together. Uh, I played on his drum demo. Back then, people made like drum demos or like, you know, or recording themselves. Like, so it was basically a drum demo of his. And I played bass on his drum demo at Tracks East, which happened to be literally a block two blocks from my house growing up in East Brunswick. He was in the next town over, this town called Spotswood, and I could literally cut through my neighbor's yard and get to Tracks East, the original Tracks East. And uh, I met Eric when I was like 16. And and then when it came time to, I did a de- another demo with another band with him. 
And he had, uh, you know, a small setup back then in his par- parents' basement. It was a, a Fostex, not a Fostex, a Tascam 38 half-inch A-track and like a, a TAC console, a Model 12 console. And um, we recorded, you know, demos with him. And then when, when I got into the other band, a band called American Angel, we, I was like, let's, I know this guy, Eric, let's go to him. And I, I recorded with him. So even back then, I, I guess that was before he started to get better known. He was known in the, in our scene and in, in our local community. Like, That's what I was wondering. Yeah, in well, he was in Spotswood. Like the, the some of the local punk people, like the bands that I wound up working with later, a band called Lifetime. Well, the Ari, the the drummer, was this, in this band called Enough before Lifetime. Uh, they recorded there, and this other hardcore band called Vision uh, recorded there in, in Eric's basement and then we did our demo and then he wound up going or doing the original version of Track 60 moved out of his parents basement into a, into a facility didn't have a lot of gear at the place but enough he had a Soundcraft console and a couple of pieces of gear an original Blue Stripe 1176 nice which now I own because uh, Eric closed the studio uh, earlier this year and I wound up actually grabbing a bunch of gear that I wound up literally cutting my teeth on back in the day when I first started working at Tracks East. So I have the old original Blue Stripe 1176, which is awesome. And I've got this other AKG tube mic that I wound up using on like the first Dillinger record and Hatebreed and like vocals and Saves the Day and so many of these records that I was the start of my career. I now have that mic at my studio, which is pretty awesome. It feels like a, it's like a full circle thing. Totally full circle. At the time when you were working with him, did like was the word around town about him that he would like? Did people think that he was going to go on to become like a famous producer? Um, it was just he was the guy. He in, was the dude. There was a few studios, local studios in town, but Eric was the best, and he's just the coolest guy ever. I mean, he's like a basically like a second father to me at this point because I've known him since I was 16 years old and we've been friends for so long now. Um, and he definitely was my mentor. And like after our deal went went south, I, w- I would like help out even in the studio when we were doing the first, that American Angel record. Uh, I actually helped him mix because that, at that time we were mixing with no automation on a console and uh, just all hands on deck. And I was like, basically the guy. I was always the guy in the studio, like trying not to be that guy, but I'm sure I was that guy. Like always. I think like, we hey, were all that on? guy when we were 18 yeah, or 19. Yeah. But you know, like now I see, I see the guy and like, I always identify that guy when like I've worked with a young band. I'm like, Oh, you're the guy. And you know, he's like, Oh, what's going on? How come you're doing this? You know, asking the questions or whatever. And it's just like, uh, <laughs> but then I'm like, wait a minute. I was that guy. I can't, I can't be mad at it. You know? Yeah. It's it's weird, right? You know what? I don't. I definitely do not mind sharing information, especially if I know that they're really taking it and they're really learning from it. The big thing is when people just like now with, you know, it's like I get questions all the time. Like, hey, what setting would you use on a com- what compressor setting do you use on a vo- on a heavy vocal? I'm like, what does the singer sound like? You know, what's the music? What's the tempo? Like. You know, you're, everybody's looking for a preset, and it's like, this, just use your ears. You got to use your ears, you know? Man, we are in the business of, I guess, one of our big missions is to kill that. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting because, you know, doing online education in recording, uh, especially when we first started, that was what our detractors were 
were saying that we were. Uh, they hadn't ever seen any of our content. They were just saying it's more of that preset garbage of people just trying to give people shortcuts. And actually, we try to eliminate that mentality because I think that mentality is, I mean, you know, it's totally destructive and it's counterproductive and you don't learn anything. It's counterproductive. You don't learn anything. And it's also, it contributes to what you were saying earlier about, thank you for the compliment about that uh, the, a lot of the bands that I work with, it sounds like the band. It sounds real and it sounds, because that's, to me, the whole thing of the devaluation of music nowadays, I think it, a lot of it stems from laziness because they, you know, the bands don't learn how to, bands don't learn how to master their craft. They don't learn their instrument. They don't, you know, it's like the, the whole thing is, it's like, learn your craft. I've always said this. This is my like mantra. I've said it till I'm blue in the face, like learn your craft. And that stems from all the way down the line. And it starts with the bands because bands, a lot of bands don't know. Like when I tell them, do it again, I'm like, what do you mean do it again? Aren't you just going to fix it? No, I want you to get it right. I want you to, the effort, even if it's not perfect, the effort that you put down, that you leave on, on tape or on DAW, whatever, you know, quote unquote tape, the effort you leave there, the blood on the track, so to speak, is, is what matters because that's what people connect with. So learn your craft, learn how to get a, learn how to learn your instrument. Don't rely on somebody knowing you're going to fix it, you know? And then on our side, on the producer engineer side, they don't learn how to coax a good performance out of somebody or know, or just feel when it feels right. And not that it's perfect, just when it feels right. And it's like, they, everybody just looks at a grid, looks at a screen and just learn, just fixes it. And it's like, so you're, you're not learning your craft as an, as a, as an artist. You're not learning your craft as a producer. So, and then, then people mix it and they're using the same stupid samples on everything and, and everything's gridded and it's just like an auto tune the vocals and all of that cheapens the music and cheapens and, and then it doesn't give you it takes all the emotional content out of it and then I think people inherently whether they know it or not on some subconscious level they don't the music doesn't hit them in the same emotional way as it used to and and there's lots of bands out there that are doing it the right way and people that are doing it the right way not not saying that everybody's doing it the wrong way not at, not at all but there's a lot of that going on and I think that's it, it makes music that you don't sit there what like us as kids because I know you're closer to my age like as kids like we're going you put on a record and you go oh that's so good and and, and it gives you goosebumps and you're just like you're so yep. into it and it takes you away it put brings you to a different place and now most of the music that's made especially in metal it's like stuff you put on while you're like vacuuming your car it's background noise. It's not, it doesn't like hit you where you want to like stop what you're doing and listen to it and get into it. I agree. You know what, what's interesting too is that, um, and I, I agree with you, the, the thing that I find interesting is that even with modern bands who use modern recording techniques, those mm -hmm. that have mastered their craft um, and just maybe they have a modern sound and and there is some editing involved and all that stuff, but but they are at the top of their game, and the producer they work with are at the top of their game, and they only use 
those techniques as tools. They don't use them as crutches. They use them as tools. Exactly. Those bands fucking rule. Like there's a band called Arcspire, a death metal band from Canada. Nice. Uh, They were recorded with my friend David Taro. Um, Cool. We actually had them on Nail the Mix back in November. And they, I mean, they do stuff at like 350 BPM. Like, I mean, it is fast. Right. And uh, and they pull it off live. I mean, they're the real deal. Of course, there's a decent amount of punching in and all that stuff on the record, of course. But it's real music. Right. The punching in thing is, I never equate the punching in thing to, you know, to the, like, to cheating, to me. Because it's not. It's not. You're punching in. You're actually still recording. It's not, you're just not playing it once and I'm fixing it. You're actually still putting the effort in. It's like, that's what I used to do on all those records, you know? Like, people ask me about the first Dillinger record and they can't believe we made that on tape. And it's like, yeah, we did. That was all punching in on tape, you know? Well, the punching in, also, I think there's, you know, there's some places where certain types of edits are appropriate. There are places where tuning's appropriate. Mm -hmm. But I think it's all, it's all just... I look at it the way, though, that, you know, there are times when you need a Phillips head. There are times when you need a flat head. Absolutely. The, the end. And so there, when appropriate, the tools are great. But the funny thing is, and tuning is the best example, I think. Oh, yeah. When you use tuning, auto-tune, on a great singer, you can't hear the auto-tune. The only time that you can hear it is when it's being pushed too hard. Uh, mm-hmm. And and it's fixing something that should just be sung right, uh, and so in reality, what we're hearing are people who kind of suck. Who I mean, I, I'm not talking about where it's an artistic decision to make it sound kind of like a vocal synth. Right, that's a different thing. That's a different thing. But in general, um, you're not supposed to be able to hear the tuning because it's only supposed to fix a. You know, subtle subtleties. It's not. Oh yeah, I mean, dude, I listened to this is maybe like three or four years ago. I remember, um, you know, Aretha Franklin, rest in peace. But I heard like the last one of the last like Aretha Franklin songs on the radio. I was like, new Aretha Franklin. I'm like, oh cool. And I hear it, and they're auto tuning fucking Aretha Franklin. I use like, are you kidding? Why? Are you kidding me? <laughs> like what? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, just it's uh, what's that one lie? I always use that line from uh, from Jurassic Park to Jeff Jeff Goldblum says the first Jurassic Park. It's like you spend so much time congratulating yourselves on. Uh, I forget what the actual line is. Like, just because you could doesn't mean you should. It basically, oh, is, the, is yeah, the line. I totally agree. <laughs> However, <laughs> I was in an Uber about a year or two ago, and the guy was listening to all this '80s rock. Uh-huh. And this uh, Motley Crue song came on, uh-huh. I think, Home Sweet Home or something. Yeah. And the vocals were so out of tune, like, I couldn't handle it. I Again, I don't know how, I mean, I was so young when it came out, but I remember my dad hearing it on the radio and being like, oh, my God, he's so flat, turn it off. Uh-huh. Um, and I didn't understand. I, I heard it recently. And was like, wow, maybe that could use a little tuning, uh, not to make it sound perfect, but just not to, just because it was so incredibly off. But at yeah, the same, at the same time, it was a huge hit. <laughs> so, yeah, it was the hell do we know? I mean, like <laughs> huge, huge hit. Here's the thing: I listen to like, but I mean, God, Zeppelin, one of my favorite bands of all time. Robert Plant, Sharp, ninety percent of the time doesn't 
matter. It doesn't nope. fucking matter. It makes you feel something. And it's like, if, if Zeppelin were around today, and I don't mean Greta Van Fleet, but I mean, if Zeppelin were around today, like, and they would auto-tune Robert Plant, it's like, ugh, just, just the thought of that just makes me cringe. Dude, not just <laughs> auto-tune uh, uh, him, but like Jimmy, J- Jimmy Page's... Yeah, or Beat Detective John Bonham or something yeah. like that. It's like, what? You know, like, Jimmy Page played some sloppy solos oh on that stuff, and they're great. And they're awesome. And it's like, just let it be, man. Just let it be. I don't get it. But then again, <laughs> we are talking about Led Zeppelin, which it were sure. a, an amazing, amazing band. Uh, so yeah. the, I guess the question is, at what point does it become appropriate mm-hmm. to, to do a little fixing? Sure. What do you think? Uh, I mean, yeah. I, Dude, I... I I, it's not like I don't fix things. Of course I do. I edit drums. Got to at some point. But I never use Beat Detective. If there's a grid. All by hand? All by hand. And it's like, I'll take sections. And it's like, if the drummer's on top, let him be on top. Just let it be consistent. You know what I mean? Let it be, let it, let it breathe. You know, there's spots where he's, he's going to drag. He's going to push into a, a chorus. He's going to like, uh, he's going to, he's going to either push or he's going to pull, you know, it's like just, you know, I you generally look at it as almost like a, a macro view and you zoom out and you go, okay, what's he doing here? And then massage it in that way. If he's going to push, let him push. If he's going to pull, let him pull. You know what I mean? Like Absolutely. That's the kind well, of stuff. I'll take whole sections and slide take the whole section and slide like a four bar section and just slide it forward, nudge it forward a little bit or nudge it back or whatever, you know what I mean? So it's not like microscopic edits. It's just general feel edits. No, not at all. It's general feel edits, you know. And I had something recently, I had some guy that I, I hired, a newer guy that I hired to try and do stuff on a, a re- more recent record. And it's like, just uh, try to explain it to him. And like, he's still like listening to like basically kick and snare. And it's like, well, what about the cymbal hand? You, you know, like you're making the kick and snare, like you put in the kick and snare on the grid now. And now like the cymbal hand is like completely dragging and the whole feel feels completely off. And it's like, you're not even listening to the to the actual push you're not listening to the pulse behind the beat you're listening to the kick and snare like do that do that but what about the what about the quarter note crashing on the ride that's actually the the swing of the whole thing you know like it's it's some of these newer guys you have to like like just show them you know and some of them will get it and some of them won't some of them just know how to use the grid and that's about it you know the best editor i've ever worked with um is a guy named john douglas john's great i've used john i've used john Yep. Yeah, he's great. Uh, actually, uh, I've known him since he was a little kid, and I was the first person he ever edited for. And I remember when he first started, uh, everything was just to the grid, and we worked really, really hard. We worked really, really hard to try to explain the musical side of things to him about that. He got it really, really fast. I mean, he's so talented. Well, you're you're a, you're a drummer, right? No, uh, I'm a guitar player, a guitar but I uh, player. Okay. but I took drum lessons in order to be able to uh, understand drums. Okay. So I did study drums for a while, but guitar is my instrument. But Got the it. thing with John that was so after you know after maybe like I say a year of I, I let's just say a year of he, we're always learning, but like after about a year, he got to this point where. All I had to say was, this one, I need this one type and natural. 
That's all I'd have to say. Right. Or this one needs, this band needs to sound like a machine. Right. And it'd come back like a machine. Or this has to be metal tight, but I still need to feel like it's a real drummer. It'd come back exactly right. the way. So I guess the reason I'm talking about him is because, to your point, what makes him a great editor, other than the fact that he's you know really fast and knows the software inside out and just you know spits them out you know, with great efficiency, is that he understands the music. And you can't be a great editor without understanding the music and understanding yeah. what it's supposed to feel like. And so I can give him the feel instructions, and he'll do exactly that. And this is why I think so many great producers hire him because every producer has different requirements. Like mm -hmm. he's done, I didn't know he's done work for you, but he also does work for like Jay Rustin or yeah. Mark Lewis. He's done work for Joey Sturgis. Like, well, I think all of them have been at the recommendation of uh, Jason Sukoff. <laughs> and I introduced him to Jason. Yeah. That's what's great about him though, is he can, he can do what the, what the producers need. Like he will actually listen to it and understand the feel of the music. Yeah. It's rare. <laughs> yeah, it's very it's very rare. I had a guy that used to work with me constantly, but he actually is kind of out of the business now that I, I worked with him for like 10 years and he was fantastic. And he just knew what I needed to do. And he used to work for Feldman before me. Um, and uh, so he knows both sides of it. You know, like I had the same thing. I had to kind of like say, nope, no beats at first. Like the first record I did with him was Story of the Year back in like 2005. And uh, I had to like show him like, okay, this is how we're doing it by hand. No, no, no beat detective. And, you know, and then he finally, he got it. He got it pretty quick. I mean, he's just, he's a smart, I mean, guy's like ridiculous, one of the smartest people I know. Understood it. And plus he was a guitar player, so he understood music, you know. So question for you about that. Um, yeah. Since we're talking about editors. Sure. Here's something that, that I'm curious about. Mm -hmm. So like with John, you know, since I've known him since he was a little kid, basically, and he was not a great editor when he started editing for me, but something about him made me want to just keep giving him a shot. Uh, and it sounds like the dude you're talking about um, wasn't great either when he started with you. What is it about somebody, in your opinion, that makes you think, hmm, if I just put some time, invest some time into this guy and get, be patient? Well, I don't know per se about the other guy that I tried. I tried him only on one project. Um, I mean, I'm willing to give him another shot for sure, but I wound up having to redo a lot of <laughs> the stuff. But but the guy, no, but the guy that you were talking about who... Oh, Alan, yeah. Oh. Who did work with you for a long time. You said he, he wasn't that great at first. What made you decide to keep going? Well, I mean, he got it fair, even during the project, he got it fairly quickly, but he was, he was a lot slower at first because he just wasn't used to like working in that manner. You know, he was so used to like basically taking a half an hour per song using Beat Detective and putting it to a grid and being done with it. Uh, yeah, it was just, I mean, I had him assist me on the whole record, not just editing. So it's just, I, we got along like right away. He's just a great guy. You know, it's just like, okay, I like having him around basically. Man, that's a big deal. I kind of ask most of the producers I have on about how they got going or how they got their big break or mm -hmm. what they look for when hiring somebody and the be cool to hang out with is always always above the skill level even. 
it's always way above the skill level unless like this unless they can't learn and they 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 don't improve then it's a different story but for well, the yeah. most part i mean like you know you're spending so much time working with these people you know for me like working on in, in my studio it's like you know you're just hanging out with them all the time it's like you got to have that'd be like being in a band with people you hate could you imagine? Like, I know Been so there. many. I right, and I know <laughs> so sucks. many people, and I also know the opposite side of it. Where I see, like, it's like, man, this band's really good, but this what, whatever, the one person's like the weak link of the band. And he's like, man, he's just, oh god, he's just not good. But they're like, yeah, but he's awesome to tour with. He he's a great hang, and it's like, or the opposite, the the backside of that, where it's like, this guy was great amazing musician but like he sucked as a person and we lasted like three weeks in a tour with him because we just couldn't be in the same room with him and it's like yeah <laughs> yeah do you remember that band chimera of course by any chance so mm -hmm. uh what i'm about to say is no no secret i mean they put this on their dvd and stuff so it's not like i'm talking shit about right. some secret but their bass player jim lamarca um was known to be a shitty bass player I mean, again, they put this is all on their on shit they released. So right, I'm not, right, right. you know, I'm not talking about anything that wasn't public. But he was known to be a shitty bass player, and those two guitar players, Matt and Rob, they were tight. And so it was it was really weird. In some, if you just thought about it purely musically speaking, why would a band that's like razor tight have this dude who can't? keep up musically because they like and, the hang <laughs> and he's the guy who socialized and like would get them in with slayer and he's the guy who when everybody else wanted to go to sleep at night he's the one who would be partying with the other bands and making contacts and helping them progress exactly and and so they kept him until uh, he left basically Yep. One, one thing that I've heard, I forget who said it. I think it was actually Chase Jarvis, the uh, the Creative Live CEO, that um, on this topic that your skills are assumed. So if you're going to be at the table, um, you know, I guess he was talking in terms of photography. If you're going to be an option for a gig or as an assistant or whatever, they're going to assume that you that you've got some of the skills, but what they're really looking for is uh, whether you understand their vision and they can hang out with you. And I think in terms of getting an assistant um, or an intern as a producer, uh, as uh, what you said, I, I want to key in on it, as long as you know that they can learn, like mm -hmm. obviously if they can't learn, then what are you doing? It's pointless. But if you know they can learn, and they 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 have the aptitude to get there, and there's some talent there, but maybe they just don't, you know, maybe they just haven't had someone a, a good mentor or whatever. Right. Then, but they're really really cool, and they can learn. Boom, that's the right kind of guy, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's so important to the the. the I mean, look, the reality of it is, as far as like. Obviously, what we do artistically and sonically is super important, but we're also, you know, this is a, we're in a service business. We have to be, you know, if people don't if people don't like you, they're not going to rebook with you. That's a huge thing. Massive. Yeah, <laughs> Massive. a lot of people. Uh, the, there's there's a few people I know that seem to forget that. You know, I've forgotten it at times. I um, ha I have too. I definitely have too. Yeah. 
I've definitely, uh, you know, when been younger and uh, got mad at bands and ruined the relationship at that point in time mm-hmm. when I, I did a really good job on the record. And remember how you used to think that that was just enough, that would be enough? <laughs> it's not that I thought it would be enough. Yeah. It's more that my interpersonal skills weren't that developed yet. And mm-hmm. so I let things get to me that I shouldn't have l- let get to me and uh, wasn't mature about how I handled them. takes an interesting amount of self-reflection on that because we expect the artist to not take it personally when we're telling them what they're doing is wrong. But then when of course it's flipped, they're going to. At, well, right, but, but then when it flips around on us... It's, it's, I have to remind myself sometimes, even now, like when I get a mix revision from a band and I'm like, what are you guys doing? This is fucking stupid. Are you kidding me? Like I'm telling this to myself, my inner dialogue, you know, I get a, I get a mix revision. I'm like, are you kidding me? Really? You want the hi-hat ladder? Come on. Like, you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) like stuff like that. And I'm like, you know what? I need to basically follow my own example. Like by, by telling them, don't take it personally. Uh, you know, I'm only doing this. Anything I tell you, a criticism, it, you know, take it with a grain of salt because the only thing I'm after is making the best record possible. So I have to like, you know, you have to constant. it's a constant, it takes some self-work. You, you really need to like, and it's a mantra, you, just, you almost need to keep reminding yourself of that, you know, because I don't have that innately built into me Neither to go, do I. you know, just like you, we get criticized. We're like, oh, what the hell you mean? What the, f-? you know, you know, you get all, you get all offended. And it's like, no, you expect everybody else not to get offended. So why are you getting offended? You know, how did you start to realize that you were doing that thing? Like what, what brought that awareness to you? You know, it's just time. It's just, it's just over time. You know, I realize things, you know, hopefully as human beings, hopefully we never really stop learning and we grow. Um, It's just, I've been doing it so damn long. (laughs) It just started (laughs) happening, you know, because I definitely didn't do it at first. And I would definitely get offended when bands didn't like what I did, you know, or suggestions I made. And I like, and I would always tell them from the get go, I'm like, don't take it personally what I do, what I'm telling you. And for so long, I would always tell the bands that, and then take it personally. And then I would take it personally. Yeah. Yeah. So I have never had like an anger problem or anything, and no. or gone to anger management. But I know that in except when anger I drive management, <laughs> one of the things that they try to get people to do is to become aware of when they're getting angry. So mm-hmm. it's one of the first steps is to become aware of what you're doing when you're doing it. And even if it takes uh, after you got angry, writing down that you got angry and why you got angry. But right. like the, one of the first steps to really getting it under control is to be aware of when you're doing that thing so that eventually when you're doing that thing, the voice kicks in and says, wait, chill, you're doing that thing again. Stop. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got myself to... Uh, to to stay level headed about about things because for me it's not mixed notes anymore now it's it's business stuff um, right and it it all applies yeah it's it's the same thing and it's literally the same thing yeah I I feel very very when I present an idea or I want to do something I feel very strongly about it because I put a lot of thought into it um, you know I thought about it from all angles 
and I'm not going to waste my partner's time. Um, I, I'm just not like right. And also, you know, it's it's also it's the same way as a as a career in production, where it's like this is your thing. This is what you're you've built, and this is you know, it's like here's what I do, and you know, so anything that's like a, a an intrusion, quote unquote, upon that, as a, as a perceived intrusion upon that, you immediately go into like what the fuck, you know, you go into like attack mode or defense mode. Well, also you can get intoxicated by your own track record. Like if a producer has sure. all these accolades, um, it's like, well, I know what I'm talking about. If like I've done all this great stuff for the business, it's Oh God. Same, same thing. It's, it's you know? the same <laughs> dude, it's the same thing. Yeah. I'll be like and people be like, when people try to tell me, it's like, dude, you're the man, you've done that. I'm like, yeah. No. <laughs> that, I think that's the right way to go. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Not a, uh, only, in in only reality, a, it doesn't matter. <laughs> in reality, it doesn't. It does and it doesn't. You know what I mean? But only a fool will think he's right 100% of the time. You know, like, I, I, it, it's, 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 the, it's, it plays true so much. You think you know something and then somebody will come along and be like, nope, you don't. Whether they're so, telling you that or not, you just, you realize it. And it's like, ah, it's just these, these moments that it happens all the time. I, I, I never try to think like, you know, uh, I'm, I so, so aware of how fortunate I am and how lucky I am to get to do something that I've loved to do my entire life, you know? And it's pretty it's, great. And it's God, just to, to like think, you know, something it's just, it's the stupidest position you could ever take. Just going to take a quick break, and I promise it's going to be quick, but it's important. I need to remind you guys, so please forgive me. This episode is brought to you by the URM Summit. Four days of networking, workshops, seminars, and hanging out with your URM friends and dozens of the industry's best pros. It's November 8th through 11 at the Las Vegas Westin, and tickets are available right now at urmsummit.com. All right, back to the episode. You know, I had a really interesting uh, podcast guest uh, a couple months ago. Her name is... Susan Rogers, and she's a uh, she is a professor at Berkeley. She she's mm-hmm. an engineer, um, okay, or former engineer. She used to like engineer for Prince. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, like she's. Oh, done, that's where I've heard that name for. Yes. Yeah, okay. she's done some yes. big shit. Yep, 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 but she's yep. also a neuroscientist. Oh, wow! And has done a lot of very interesting research. But one of the things that she told me was that studies show that she's conducted that a trained musical brain and a non-trained musical brain at the end of the day don't perceive music that differently. Um, maybe there's like a 5% variance or something. The only difference really is that those of us who are more trained have a language for it and understand the technical the technical stuff. But when it comes down to um, having an opinion on it, just because you have... A, a professional advantage, or you know, because you know how stuff is made, doesn't mean that your opinion is more developed. And there's scientific proof for that. The reason I say that is because a lot of times producers who always think they're right think they're right because they think they're the expert. And it turns out that the common listener, when it comes to taste or when it comes to pointing things out that are right or wrong, um, 
common listeners are just as expert too, interestingly enough. For sure. And so it's important. I'm sure obviously she has a she's she's more of an <laughs> she's more of an expert in the neuroscience thing. Well yeah. <laughs> but I think there's also there's inherently a not to train musician, but I think there's people who are more receptive to music than others. Some people yes, music sure. is like something that you put on in the background. And some people, even if they don't play music, they they are affected by music. And those people, obviously, they're they're no different than we are. We just know that we just know how to get somewhere. We know we have a roadmap at least from based on experience. We know these roads. It's basically that. Yeah, that's exactly right. But a, a lot of producers will discount. Uh, the opinions of those people. Uh, and hell no. I, I think, you know, the funny thing is like, and, and it's not to ever um, discount, uh, in no way am I discounting like the females saying like they're, they're not trained, they're not, you know, there's plenty of great female engineers and great female musicians, great female producers. But somebody else pointed out to me, actually Jesse Cannon pointed out to me, I think he called it like, when you're doing stuff for like, say like mixed details, he goes, if it passes the girlfriend test, and that's what I meant by like not discounting females, but if it passes the girlfriend test, meaning basically like, someone who's not in the band or someone who's not really, really tuned into it, if the girlfriend notices that the mix is bad, then that's something. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Or they notice if the girlfriend notices the detail, then yes. My partner Joel calls it the mom test. The mom <laughs> test, the girlfriend test, right? <laughs> yeah. It could be anybody. The the just you know your bro that Brent comes into the studio that doesn't is not a musician. She says, "Oh wow, that sounds weird." If someone's if someone that's not tuned into it points it out, and I never discount those. Like, what do you know? You what do you listen? To? You what do you you know? Like the girlfriend says comes in and says, "Oh, that sounds funny." It's like, well, you if pay, someone you pay is, attention to you pay that, attention, for sure. absolutely pay attention to that because if someone who's not in the business notices, then maybe something's wrong. You know, like don't be like, oh, what does she know? You know, it's like the stupidest. It's the stupidest thing. It's, uh, but we get <laughs> and we get very territorial about things. But then again, then where's the line? Because then when someone's girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever partner comes in. Into a session when we're working and starts making suggestions. You should do this. It's like sometimes my first reaction, especially years ago, my first reaction would be, "Oh God, really, really? You're gonna you're gonna make suggestion? Like, get out of here! What are you doing in here?" But <laughs> there's also been times where it's like, "Huh." Someone who has a completely outside perspective, the sa in the same way that I'm. That we as producers and engineers, when we're called to produce a band in, they, they come in, they want an outside perspective. So me to come and look at a song and go, hey, what if you do this? And they're like, wow, we never thought of that. Well, if I'm expected to, to have that happen, then why wouldn't I take into account someone, some rando that comes rolling into the studio and makes a suggestion? <laughs> you never know. You never know. One of the first full lengths I ever did was for this local country artist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, and I, I think it was like the second album I ever recorded. Oh, cool. And he brought his, for the mix, the main guy was like, my wife's got a great ear and she's coming to the mix. And, and you're like, oh God. Yeah, but, but it, because they sat next to me. So on one side I had him and on the other I had his wife, like, Literally right up in my space, 
Wow. And she was giving me mixed notes the whole time. And she's not a musician or producer or anything. Um, it, it was it was interesting. Um, her mixed notes weren't that bad, though, honestly, if I'm being honest. Yeah, I mean, if it's something like, make it sound more blue, it's like, uh, what? <laughs> if it's something like that, then it's like, <laughs> no. But, you know, you never know. Like I said, you can't you can't discount that kind of stuff because, you know, ultimately... Who are we making music for? We're making music for mostly people who don't play an instrument or don't listen. You know what I mean? It's true. So where is the line, though? <laughs> if I knew, if anybody knows, <laughs> feel free to chime in or write, you guys, because uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever know where the line is. And I don't even know if I want to know where the line is, to be honest with you. Actually, Jesse, he was telling me that, uh, that Ross Robinson, in his experience with Ross, Ross would have lots of people over and take their, you know, if some if the girlfriend in the back said something, he'd listen. He would. Always would. Uh, Ross definitely likes to go to the absolute limit with that kind of stuff. Like, he actually relishes all the chaos. He would invite as many people into the control room as possible. <laughs> I can't imagine. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I've... I've you know, I've done some engineering for Ross and it's like after a while it'd be like, ah, oh, cause he, he just, he's drawn to very extreme personality. So he would have just like the craziest wacky people. And then his old studio was in his house on the, on the beach and like literally off the sand in Venice. And there's lots of really colorful people, um, interesting characters that float around Venice boardwalk. And he would invite, he'd just leave the door open and people would just wander in off the street like, hey, what's going on in here? just leave the door open? Oh, yeah. He would leave the door open. Wow. <laughs> and I'd be like, dude, come on, man. We got to get some work done. <laughs> He's like, oh, that's great, dude. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> that is mind-blowing. Yep. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, I, I've also done sessions with him Back in the day, like when we worked without the drive-in, where he would kick everybody out, including me. Like I'd set up the tones and then, okay, bye. And then I'd go sit in the lounge. Interesting. So, yeah. What was the reason for that? Um, probably just especially working when he'd like work with Cedric just to like dig deep on an emotional level with him. And just he's really good at that better than anybody I know as far as like getting to the core of why somebody's singing what they're singing and just to get the most extreme possible emotional reaction out of them to and then capture it on the mic. Interesting. I mean, that makes mm -hmm. sense. So in those party sessions, is it, were those like during tracking or mixing? During or? tracking, not mixing. Okay. Yeah, during tracking. He would welcome the chaos. I mean, I've seen videos, obviously, mm -hmm. like little clips of that from like Slipknot recordings or whatever, where it's yep. just like insanity. And But those Slipknot records... Uh, basically put metal back on the map. Yeah, I mean, for sure, they were like an explosion, and and then you see the videos, and it was like there was an explosion going off mm -hmm. in that studio, and then it was captured. Was that kind of the idea? That's the idea. Interesting. I I couldn't work like that. <laughs> I know. I, hate I mean, like people around. <laughs> I, I do too. For the most part, I like to focus on whoever I'm working with. You know, but you know. Everybody's got their method. That's that's fine. Like you know, if we all did everything the exact same way, it'd be kind of a boring. Your your job would be pretty boring because you talk to people and they give you yes. the same answers. So, 
Well, I mean, so, so a lot of your work also kind of has that explosion thing mm-hmm. happening. Where do you try to pull that out of? Uh, it sounds, I mean, so it sounds like Ross tries to create an environment where that vibe is just in the air. And so it translates into the performances. Yeah, I, I try to, for me, it's more of a... Um, uh, a controlled explosion or a controlled experiment. <laughs> I try to do it under safety conditions, like I guess a you want to say. Charge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's just really, but again, it's for me, it's, it's, uh, you know, I've definitely have been known to push people and not in the same way that Ross would do it, but it's just, uh, you know, I'd be like, come on, man, just uh, get him to just dig deeper and dig deeper and just, it's, you know, and I don't want perfection. I never want perfection. Because I, I, perfection's friggin' boring. Um, when you say dig deeper, what do you mean? It's just you know, like when I'm even like for the drummers, like you know, it's like they they do a part, and it's like, well, that sounds nice, but I'm not really feeling what you're doing, you know, like, and it's not necessarily hitting harder. It's just uh, a freeing thing. Just like don't I don't want to hear you thinking about what you're doing. That's more about more more than it more it than anything. It's, you know, trying to like turn your brain off. Just do it again. Let's go. Do it again. And like a lot of times, especially now with Pro Tools, it's so much faster than with tape. As far as just no rewind time, I could literally just hit the space bar. No, again, no, again, no, again. Like just boom, 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 boom. And it's like eventually you're just doing it and it's like you stop thinking about what you're doing and you just play. And it's more like that. It's just, and it's just like I'll know it when I hear it, you know? It's just, it's, it's just a feeling thing. It's just an internal kind of, feel that it just when it feels right to me it feels right to me you know i used to do this thing where um and it worked really really well for me where i would just tell the drummer that i just want them to play the song over and over and over and when they start to feel like the way you feel maybe three or four songs into a live show yeah when you know, it's not just adrenaline, but it's like your whole body is there and it feels good and you're loose and you're feeling it. And, yep. you know, when that, when you get to that state, that's when we'll record. And it's always better. It's always better. I mean, now the thing I do a lot, which is really killer, is um, because the way, uh, the way the studio, my studio is set up, there's two, I have a, there's, it's a, I'm in a two room facility. I have the B room and I have my control room and three, three, you know, one big large ISO, which is big enough for drum kit, but I don't do it because I like to have, I like, I, I'm more into ambient drum tones. So the A room has a bigger room and then there's a, there's a hallway, which is designed as an acoustic chamber. So I have a mic down the end of the hallway. But what I do, the A room, there's no sight lines into the A room. So now, I run my laptop in screen sharing mode to run Pro Tools. So I go in the the other room and stand in front of the drummer and just, first of all, it's way more like just, it feels like, I try to make it just like like when we're doing pre-production rehearsal. I'm just in there with the drummer and I'm feeling what he's doing. Like if I'm standing in front of him and I get that feeling, then that's the right take. You know, it's like, if it feels right to me, that's it. And, um... 
I'd like to try to keep it like natural so it's not like he's with headphones and he's, he sees me behind a glass or doesn't see me at all, which is even worse. You know, like what he's probably like going through his brain, like what's he thinking? Is it good? Is it not good? I don't Are know. Are they you making know, like, fun of me? Uh, yeah. And then like, then the voice over the talk back, let's do it again. Like I'd rather just like stand in front of him and just be like, kind of bopping my head and be like, yeah, and like looking at him, making eye contact and I like, can even like mime right before he's about to do a fill, like, don't forget that fill, you know, like, because like when we, you know, in pre-production, like working on like, my, a lot of my pre-production is just working with the, mainly working with obviously arrangements, but working with the drums and making sure the drum parts all hit in the right way because that's our foundation. Um, so it's again, it's like, I literally don't even necessarily listen back to the playback you know, we'll go back at the end and listen, but even when I'm punching, I'll be like just punching in with him standing in the room and it's like, that felt great. Okay, that's the one. You know what I mean? Or and punch it and like, and like it's great because there's really no lag with uh, doing the screen sharing thing. There's barely any lag. So I could punch in, no problem. And I'm running, you know, basically my full Pro Tools rig just with using a, a screen sharing for my laptop. Um, and then when it's come time to like overdubs, on guitars and stuff same thing like basically always want the guitar player to stand and play like he's playing live and they're like i want to sit down i'm like right because you sit down live right that's exactly what you do <laughs> you know it's like does this make any sense like why i don't understand why i mean like i get it the, right and trust me the record is very important especially the way i i want to make the records like more of an old school approach, like it's super important. The record thing, uh, I, the records are important. They're not just a vehicle to to get people to listen to Spotify and then go see you live. You know, it's still very important. Like the the essence of the song, you want to capture that. So, like, stand up when you're playing. Like, it's it's such a simple concept, but like, why not? You know, that takes I think a lot of trust and a lot of rapport building with the artists for them to for them to go there with you and i think especially newer bands were you know newer bands who might be used to the you know sitting down and doing things in micro fragments even if you're punching in and doing it in small sections like why not stand i just don't understand the whole like okay now we have to make a record now let's sit down and make sure everything's perfect make it clinical. And like like why like the, it's even just that just the the mindset just sterilizes it, especially the digital age. Anything you could do to make it less sterile, I'm all for. That's amazing. Is this something you discuss in advance with the bands? Like we're gonna we're gonna make this sound as explosive and live as possible, or I mean, yes and no. I've had that. Uh, generally, I, I like. You know, I've had that backfire with me, but for the most part, when I go meet with a potential client with a band, I usually wind up getting the record because I'm just I'm just pretty passionate about the way I want things to sound, and I want them just to have make the best version of themselves. I don't want to just make like a okay, it's like paint by numbers. Okay, here we go. We track the drums. Now we track the guitars. Now we try you know like, or worse, let's track all the guitars to a programmed drums and then track the drums afterwards. You know like. Oh God, I just, that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand tracking the drums after you track everything. Like it doesn't make any sense or worse or worse tracking drums without symbols and then overdubbing the symbols. Like, oh my God, really? So I, I think the reason that they do uh, that drums last method and, uh, I, I have a feeling I know what you're going to say, but, uh, the reason I think that they do it that way is because the drummer is unsure of 
some of the parts. And so they're coming in somewhat underprepared. Well, or you know what I'm going to tell you. Yeah, Be prepared. <laughs> Be prepared. Yeah, how exactly. about, how's, how's that? Learn your craft. Be prepared. Be prepared before you get in the studio. Like, how, how do you build a house and then build the basement last? You don't. There's no <laughs> way. It's impossible. So how would you do that in the recording? Your foundation, the drums, is the heartbeat of the whole thing. Is like everything. I mean, I get it. I, I understand that people do it, but it's, it's so alien to me. You know, I've done it. I've literally done something just like that. I did that on on Devil Driver on the Country Covers record. Why? Because that's how I I was actually hired to do drums, Dez's vocals, and mix. Uh, Mike and Neil tracked all the guitars and bass at home to program drums. And then Austin and I went in there after the fact and tracked drums. Oh, okay. So it was just given to you. It was given to me that way. Yeah. And it's interesting I would never choose to do that. You know, if a band was insistent, look, the ultimate thing is, and I always tell this, here's the bottom line. The ultimate thing is always what I tell bands. Ultimately, it's your record. It's not my record. I'm not making this about me. I'm making this about you. I will tell you what I think should happen just on, not because I know everything, just on all the experience and everything like that. Yeah. This is, in my opinion, would make the best version of you, of your band. Take that for what it, what it is. If you're so insistent that you want to record the drums last, absolutely I'll record the drums last. It's, you know, again, it's not about me. I'll make it and I'll make that the best version of that. My, my whole thing is to try and just take whatever they want to do and make the best version of whatever that is. If it's within these parameters, where the drums are last, then I'll take that. I'm not going to bitch about it. I'm going to just do the best version of that. That's that's the whole point. So if they want to do it, I'll do it. You know, I'll say like, I disagree. I'll be like, I think, and here's why, we should do it the other way. But if you want to do it, absolutely. Again, we're in a service-oriented business. <laughs> the client is our boss. Yep. They want what they want. If they want to make replace all the snare drums with kazoos, I'll be like, I think that doesn't sound very good. But if you <laughs> want to do that, I will do that. You know. You know, I think that that's that's very interesting, and I wish more producers understood that. One, because I think a lot of producers have the my way or the highway mentality, and also not just big pros. Um, yeah, I see a, a lot in our uh, we have in our private community that lots of people who are starting their careers, they'll learn these great techniques. And so they want to use them. Well, it's, again, they're making it about themselves. It's like, yes, look, exactly. look, what, look what I can do. And it's like, okay, great. What are you going to, now All you have all these tools, what are you actually going to do with it? Are you going to serve, you know, are you going to actually contribute to something? Are you going to serve the artist or are you just going to serve yourself? And it, that took me. That took me a long time. It took me a good portion of my career. Well, it takes maturity. It takes maturity, and like I said, I've been doing this a long time, and it's like I've been doing this since the '90s, and it's like you can't make it about yourself. It's never about yourself. If it's your project, and then it's about yourself, that's fine. <laughs> but it's not your project. You know, if it's if I'm making an original music thing from scratch that I'm producing, then it's about me. 
but I'm not doing that. I'm recording another band. I'm producing another band. It's about them. So that said, being that it's about them, mm-hmm. at what point is the vision defined? And how do you balance that, I guess? How do you balance that against... I mean, I know that you just said that you will suggest things, and if they are adamant, you'll go with, uh, you know, it's their record, but... How do you balance? It's hard because, like, there's there's still there'll still be things that I'll disagree with, and I'll be like, "Listen, I really, are you sure? I really think, I really think, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be almost uh, annoying about it, you know. I'll be like, look, I really think you, ah, all right, all right, you know, like, I eventually, like I said, eventually you're gonna have to. It's their, they're the client. They want, you know, it's one thing, you know, it's it's a lot different now too and and I think to to the almost to the improvement of it where it's a lot more artist driven than it is label driven where it's like I used to have to deal with the band but then I used to have to deal with the management telling me that they want this in a certain direction or the label wanting this in a certain direction so then I have to you know I'm I'm dealing with me creatively as a producer I'm dealing with the band creatively as an artist but I'm also dealing with the label pressure from the label we need a single we need this we need that you know I mean I've done major label stuff, a lot of indie stuff, but a fair share of major label stuff. And it's like, you still, that that sometimes comes into account, you know? But now with artists being much more in control, I think it's, it actually creatively is a lot more free than it used to be. Oh, I think that that's one of the best things about the modern age, but still, Mm -hmm. who wins? Like when you have a situation where the artist and the label have opposing uh, have an opposing uh, desire for some for a song or a mix or for anything. Yeah, sometimes you have to pick and choose your battles too, you know, because you know you have to also understand that side of it and the politics of it. Like, if you don't play ball, sometimes then it's like, uh, is the label gonna not, uh, you know, be more forthcoming with promotion on the record or tour support or you know, like. Yeah, there, there's definitely a thing that, that sometimes you have to, you know, even for me, for just between me and the artists, you know, it's like, okay, what's the, what's the ultimately, you're still going to piss and moan about like one part that like you think is wrong. And it's like, overall, what's the record, you know, like, you think, <laughs> think I always talk about baseball as far as a metaphor for life and, and uh, averages because, you know, baseball is a game of failure. And if you, if you, fail seven out of 10 times, you're still basically putting up all-star numbers. Absolutely. So it's like, (laughs) so (laughs) it's like, okay, what's the overall thing? Are you winning 90% of the time? Great. Like as overall, like what's the overall outcome of the record? It's like, okay, if everybody's so adamant about this one thing and you in your heart know it's not good and, but the band's super into it. It's like, dude, they're going to be happy. Then ultimately, what have you done? You've made them happy which is what you're supposed to do. Yeah, at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. At the end of the day, sometimes, you know, you realize like, oh, they can't get out of their own, you know, like for the most part, everybody you work, we work with is, I think now, especially also, that bands are a lot more well-informed. That is for sure. Compared to back when I was first working with bands, when they nobody knew anything about recording. You know, sometimes that's a blessing and a curse, when too many people in the band, oh, I record too. I produce bands. It's like, you have a laptop. Okay, cool. <laughs> but, you know, you got to start somewhere. I started on a, on a four track. If I thought 
if if I was Eric Rachel saying, looking at me, oh, you got a four track. It's like, yeah, yeah, sure, kid. If I thought with that attitude, then I wouldn't, you know, maybe I would never have pursued it. Yeah, but you still can't have too many cooks in the kitchen. You can't. No, you can't. And again, like I said, if the band can't get out of their own way, sometimes you have to be like, look, I'm telling you from experience, this is wrong. You guys don't see it yet. Maybe you will down the road. But again, if you want it, I'll do it. I'll passionately plea. I'll be like, I really think you're making a grave mistake here, but I will do it. But I'm just telling you, I think it's wrong. (laughs) And that's as far as I can go. I'm not, what am I, what am I going to do? No, take my ball and go home. They'll take the hard drive. They're like, no, that's it. You're done. Can't do it. That's I actually, like, I've, I, I, uh, I worked with a producer me. once who did that to my band. <laughs> <laughs> it sucked. He took his ball and went home, really? Basically, yeah, oh basically. My God. He, uh, he, uh, he didn't want somebody else to master it. Um, oh, God. We wanted we wanted somebody else to master. We had someone in mind. Uh, he mixed it, and uh, he wanted to master it. And uh, generally, I think that's a terrible idea. Yeah, I I agree. Bands ask me to to master. Do you master? I'm like, no, I don't. I leave that to mastering engineers. Well, this guy wanted to be <laughs> the mastering engineer, right? But it's just like. It's just like the way bands shouldn't generally, for the most part, bands shouldn't self-produce because they want, you need that outside ear and that outside opinion because you don't. sometimes you're so close to it, you don't see it. Same thing for me for mastering. I don't want to master a record I just mixed because I want someone else to look at it and go, yeah, okay, man, it's a little murkier on the low mids. Okay, clear it up. Listen back. Wow, that sounds great. Awesome. Like I want someone to look at it from an outside point. An outside view. I want an outside ear to listen to the final thing. What does it need? I completely agree. Yeah, so this guy, the way he took the ball and went home was that he destroyed the unmastered mixes. Oh, my God, really? Yep. <laughs> yeah, so that that I've had it happen, so... But I, I agree, producers should not do that. <laughs> you should. I mean, we never went with him again, and then that label never hired him again. So, well, you there know, you go again. There's no no good outcome from no good outcome behaving that way. No. So, real quick, because sure. uh, we've been talking for a while, and I don't want to take up the rest of your day. We have some <laughs> questions, okay, from our listeners for you, and people were stoked that uh, that you're coming on. Cool. So I'd love to ask you some of these. Dave Vole is wondering, how do you accomplish everything always sounding so natural but so insanely tight? It's just hard work. <laughs> it's basically <laughs> it. It's really just, again, it's, it's tight, but it's never like edited Pro Tools grid tight ever. It's just, it's, it's never perfect. It's just, it's, it's just do it till it feels right. Till it feels right to my ear, and uh, that's it. And again, I try not to look at the screen as much as possible. You just get great performances. Get great performances. It always starts with the source. So Anthony Chognar is wondering or saying, I'm a huge fan of Steve's drum sound, especially on the Dillinger Escape Plan, Architects, and Devil Sold to Soul records. It mm-hmm. would be great if he could talk about his approach, particularly on room mics. Uh, I'm a big fan of room mics. Um, it's really just, uh, I like, I know other people 
Like Ross, for one, is he's the opposite. He's anti-room mics. He likes drums as tight as possible, like 70s style. He's always been into that. Uh, and I've always been a fan of, of roomier drums. I like the space and the feel of the, um, like the room basically like pulsing with, with the beat of the drums. And, uh, yeah, it's more like that. I, I, I use the room mics as a main component of the sound. And then a lot of times like riding the rooms up and down, especially on like drum fills or like even like a snare fill or something like just like little accent parts. I'll, I'll just pop it up a little bit during the mix to make it pop. Nice. Yeah. Greg Shiflet says, dude, you made so many of my favorite records and definitely made the best sounding hardcore records. Death of Your Perfect World, um, Satisfaction is the Death of Desire, and mm-hmm. Progression Through Unlearning are absolutely insane. And the sounds on each are still what I want to hear when I put on any record oh, or try to cool. make so strong and aggressive, but still clear and present. Hey, not a question, but nice comment. Hey, thanks, man. <laughs> That's awesome. Scott Bennett, what was working with Story of the Year like? What kind of influence did you have in the final product with Wicked Determination? It's a much heavier record than their previous release. It's a much heavier record. Uh, That's the record they wanted to make at the time. Uh, It was awesome. I loved working with those guys. I mean, I saw them live leading up to before we made that record, and I was like, they sounded more, they didn't sound really almost anything like Page Avenue, their first record, uh, live, they were so much heavier of a band. I was like, and you know, they they loved like they were speaking of the, what he was talking about, like the hardcore record, especially the singer Dan, huge hardcore fan, loved Hatebreed, Snapcase, Turmoil, all those bands that I work with back in like the late nineties. Um, and they wanted to make a record like that, like some of their songs, like sound that there was quite a bit of influence from from Snapcase on some of their stuff, and uh, so. That was the record they wanted to make at the time. Unfortunately, it didn't uh, it didn't sell as much as Page Avenue, but they were stoked on it. You know, uh, part of the fact that the record didn't sell as well as it did was because we put it out. That was still on Maverick, and the label basically folded six months later after we put the record out. They, they wanted to make a heavy record, and we did. And I and I stand by it. It's it's a it's an awesome record. So here's one by Drake Kent. The Wonder Years album, The Greatest Generation, is mm-hmm. one of my favorites of all time. Could cool. you walk us through any of the production process, specifically vocals? Well, recording uh, Dan Soupy, um, it's a fairly easy process. I mean, I I just have to push him a little hard, and once he gets going, it, it's actually pretty simple. He just he's so emotive in his um, performance that he doesn't know how to not do that. So it's just capturing the magic. It's just a matter of just hitting it till it till it feels right, till it you know till it feels great. That's really it. I sense a common theme in your answers that I just <laughs> want to point out. Sure. Which is that uh, the artists you work with bring it on their end. And so of course. you capture them bringing it. And without the artists bringing it, it's like, it seems like that's an integral part of your equation. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, like another thing I've learned over the years, for sure, sometimes you have to have a heavier hand in things and sometimes the best producing you can do is to know when to sit back and just mm-hmm. let it happen and don't feel the need to like, you know, put your screws to everything like, okay, I'm producing it. You know, like, no, sometimes like, man, that was awesome. Leave it the fuck alone. Just guide the process and just get to the end. Get to, get them to the finish line. That's it. You know. Yeah, I forget who told me this. A great producer said it. A, a great producer knows 
when to get out of the way. Exactly, 100%. And that's, again, something took me years to do. I always felt like I'm not doing enough. I'm like, well, I'm producing it. I'm not doing enough. It's like, no, (laughs) sometimes you could just, the best producing is to get the fuck out of the way. Absolutely. So, all right, final question. And it would, this would just be incomplete without asking this one. It's from Connor Rising, which is, uh, how did you approach tracking on the first Dillinger album? The performances (laughs) are all so tight, yet very natural and emotional sounding. Did you do any live tracking or build things up one instrument at a time to a click? Seems like quite the challenge with their style of music. I love your work, man. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, There's no click on the first Dillinger record whatsoever. Miss Machine was the first time we ever used a click, and that was only on, I think, three songs, and the rest of that was no click as well. Um, Yeah, first record is no click, all to tape. The basic tracks were uh, not the full band live, but usually just, um, uh, just Ben and Chris, the drummer at the time, doing the first... Uh, run through live scratch guitar a couple times some couple of things we kept on the on the live tracking guitar but for the most part it was guitars were overdubbed um and uh yeah because the uh brian benoit didn't play a lot on the first record it was basically all ben when we did the running board under the running board ep which was before that uh the mullet burden of those songs those were tracked live and that was that was the full band. That was a five piece band, uh, not not so wow. much uh, Dimitri, not the vocals, but the four pieces. That was with uh, John Fulton on guitar, and when Adam Dahl before his accident on bass. And that was we tracked those completely live. Um, and then over you know, overdub guitars or whatever, but we definitely tracked the full band uh, on on those on that on that three song EP. And uh, Calculating Infinity was much different because um, Fulton was out of the band. Brian Benoit had just joined, so he, and he wasn't really, like, only had joined, like, right before we made the record. So it was basically all Ben on guitar, uh, Brian on a few quick little things, uh, Ben and me on bass in parts, uh, Ben on bass for a lot of it, but then on some things, uh, I would take it when I needed more of a bass player kind of feel and I would grab the bass on certain songs on parts of certain songs. So we kind of like tag team the bass on that record, but the basic track was always Ben and, and it was the same for that record and the same thing for Miss Machine. The, the basic track was always starting with Ben and Chris live in the room together and then built around it. That's so impressive. That band is just so impressive, I think. Yeah, they're awesome. And it's, you know, it's probably, when you talk about the language, remember you were talking about like we speak that, you know, you have a language, you have a vocabulary. Yeah. And people have t- asked me over the years, like, how do you understand Dillinger? How do you understand that music? And I was like, well, I was there from the very beginning, from the very first EP. Like, they built their own musical language, and I was there from the inception of the language. So I understood the language. So it never seemed that weird to me. Makes perfect sense, man. I remember when they toured with Mr. Bungle. Mm-hmm. I think that was 98 or 99. 99. Um, yeah. 99. Yeah, I went, I went to that to see Bungle because Bungle had been inactive for a long time. and uh, this, Was that the uh, California record? Yes, it was on California. Yeah. And uh, the opening band was this band called Dillinger Skate Plan. I was <laughs> like, eh, I don't want to sit through an opener. And they started playing, and it was just like, oh, my God, 
what, what the is fuck? going on here? Yeah, yeah oh, I have yeah. never seen anything like this in my life. This is the future. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, it was mind blowing. It was very, very cool that you were there at the beginning of that. But uh, Steve Evitz, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's yeah. been fantastic talking to you. It's my pleasure, man. Thank you so much for having me. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Sure Legendary Microphones. Cutting edge wireless systems, premium earphones and headphones. Sure, the most trusted audio brand worldwide. For more information, go to sure.com. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today. <laughs>